This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. In the beginning of Parshat Lech Lecha, which we read this week, Abraham gets a call from God. Vayomer Adonai el Avram Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha me'artzecha umimoladetecha umibet avicha l'eretz asher ani areka. God calls out to Abraham and says, get up and go. Leave behind everything you know. Leave your home, leave your family, Get up and go into the great unknown. And this journey, this initial journey that Avram takes in the book of Genesis is the origin story of the Jewish people. This is the beginning of what will become the covenant with the Jewish people. And as we know, Abraham was a father of great nations. So it's not only our origin story. This is one of the great sacred stories at the heart of many faith traditions. And there's something great for you, God says. There's a great blessing for you. But in order for you to receive it, you have to leave everything that's comfortable, everything that's known to you, leave it all behind. Now, the rabbinic mind over the last several thousand years is really stirred up by this narrative. But no question occupies the rabbis more than this one. Why this guy in this moment with this call? Who even is this man of Ram? And what is it about him that God chooses him of all people to become the father of great nations? And the Torah barely gives us a hint in an answer to this question. So the stories abound. And I am guessing that many of you have heard many of these stories. The rabbis attempt to explain what was so special about this guy that he was called into this place. One of them tells the story about Avram being a small boy, only three years old, Hazel's, Hazel size. When he deduces that neither the sun nor the moon had the ultimate power because each of them had to make way for the other. So instead, there must be something greater in the universe, something greater than nature, something supernatural that ruled it all. And in that moment, this small child discovered the greatest truth of all, that God is the great force of the universe. To this one, I will pray and prostrate myself. Abram, one of the Midrashim says, worked in his father's idol store when with incredible audacity and also classic Avram wit unveils the absurdity of worshiping gods of stone when there's only one God, Melech Malcham Lachim, God the Holy One. Avram was like a traveler, some of the rabbis say, who witnesses a beautiful house, a palace that is burning, and he can't fathom just walking by and pretending that everything is all well when nothing at all is well. It is not only his curiosity, but it's also his wakefulness that makes him notice, that makes him stop. And his fierce belief that things need not be as they are. So he stops and he asks, how could it be that something so majestic could just burn and nobody here, nobody here is caring for it? Avram, we learn, is the one who sees the pain in the world. 
but he also sees the beauty in the world and he can't help but ask, how can it be that something so beautiful doesn't have anyone to protect it? Taken together, all of these different midrashim, all of these rabbinic explanations form quite a composite picture for us. This guy, this guy is curious and he's wise, he's intuitive and he's imaginative, he's witty and he's smart and he's ardent and he is awake. He's courageous, he's unyielding, he sees what others ignore, he asks what others assume. He is, the Torah tells us, an ivri. What we translate as Hebrew, but what really means he's the one who crosses over. And Rabbi Yehuda says in Bereshit Rabbah that this guy, this guy, our ancestor, is unlike anyone else who ever lived in the world. The whole world was standing on one side, the side of ignorance, the side of apathy. But this guy crossed over to the side of concern and care and covenant. Today is November 4th, 2022. And I remember exactly where I was on November 4th of 1995. I remember it because there's some moments, otherwise mundane moments in our lives that we would never remember had they not coincided with some momentous, awful news. I remember exactly where I was when the second plane hit the Twin Towers. And we all realized in that moment that it hadn't been an accident. I remember exactly where I was and what I was wearing the moment that the glass windows were shattered at the Capitol on January 6th. I remember exactly where I stood outside of Brookworth Schefter's Hanukkah party on the side of the street when I found out that my cousin Lizzie was going to die from colon cancer. I remember exactly where I was, all the details, the day that my friend Adam shouted up to my apartment on Shenandoah Street one Shabbat afternoon, November 4th, to tell me that Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of the state of Israel, had been murdered by a Jew. Rabbi Panitz and I were remembering a little bit together today. I was in my first year of rabbinical school at the time here in Los Angeles, engaged to be married, and Rabbi Panitz was eight years old. <laughs> okay, you're going to hear a little bit more about his story tomorrow. But I want to tell you about my story because I remember that moment. I knew that that moment was a momentous moment. It was momentous because my formative time in Israel, a year in college, was during the Oslo years. And though I had heard the cynicism and the concern about the peace process, I was so damn hopeful. I was so hopeful that despite all of the signs that this was a society that was hell-bent on undoing democracy, that there was still hope. And yet here we were, Rabin was dead and the nation was plunged into grief and chaos. I remember this moment because there was a searing pain in my chest and our worst fears were realized that this growing chorus of right-wing ultranationalist religious Jews who were inciting violence, that they had taken their ultimate victim, the prime minister of the Jewish state, I had seen images in the months before of thousands of seething protesters filling the streets, calling Rabin a rodef, a pursuer, someone who, according to the halakha, according to Jewish law, was we were all obligated to kill. And I remember thinking, those guys better be careful the way they're talking. They live in a region where people take religious rhetoric 
pretty literally. I remember the moment. Friends were over for lunch that afternoon when Adam called up to my apartment, his voice shaking from right outside on the lawn. And I felt the muscles in my legs give out as they would years later when we found out the news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died so close to the election. And I crumbled to the floor. And I remember that our friends began to argue, was Israel done? Or to put it another way, was this the murder of a man or was this the murder of a movement? You see, Rabin had not been perfect, but he was prophetic. It was Rabin who insisted in his words and in his actions that even as we all held a profound awareness of the miraculous existence and the remarkable achievements of the state of Israel that we had to be clear-headed. We had to be honest in addressing the struggles and the rifts and the moral failures that threatened to destroy the state. Rabin understood that as a nation, a people mired in cynicism and conflict and blame, we could not be healthy and resilient. When he reached out to the Palestinian people in peace, he understood that even after generations of conflict, for us to truly thrive, we had to choose a different path. He understood that as distinct as our suffering has been as a Jewish people, we're not the only ones who suffer. We're not the only ones who are tired of living in fear and desperate to heal the trauma that passed from one generation to the next. He understood that we cannot turn away from each other, but instead we have to turn toward each other, affirming the great bond of human connectedness that unites us all. Rabbi knew that in order to make peace with our neighbors, we would have to be brave, and we would have to be serious, and we would have to be honest. Many said that Rabin did what no one else could do, that he saw what no one else could see. Was this the death of a man, or was this the death of a movement? Was this the end of the great striving, one born of our history of anguish and agony of yearning and praying and promising, a striving enshrined in the declaration of the establishment of the state, a Jewish nation that would be based on freedom, justice, and peace, as envisaged by the prophets of Israel, a state ensuring complete equality of social and political rights to all of its inhabitants. Was Rabin so singular that no one could, as many pledged after the death of Dr. King, pick up the baton and carry on. Would there ever be another person who would possess the wisdom and the intuition and the imagination to lead the quest for peace? Would there ever be another as ardent and awake, as courageous and unyielding? Was this really the end? Now, years ago, I heard David Grossman, the great Israeli author, and actually, in many ways, the moral heart of the state of Israel, say that when we commemorate the death of Yitzhak Rabin, what we really need to do is take a hard look at ourselves, at our society, and at our leadership. And I imagine that he was trying to remind us that even as we grieve the man, we have to remember that it's not yet over for the movement. Perhaps Grossman knew that a society must not only remember, but we have to reflect. Because if there's to be any hope, it's gonna come not only from grieving what we've lost, but from being honest about where we're heading. So I wanna ask us to be honest tonight about where we're heading. The government that was elected in Israel this week is comprised of an alliance of Jewish extremists, 
a crew of ultra-Orthodox and ultra-nationalist leaders so racist and so homophobic that before now their discourse was deemed beyond the pale in Israeli politics. Some of these extremists are also violent. Yeah, for those who are just realizing this week how bad things are over there, it's bad. But I have to tell you that it's been trending in this direction for some time now as the occupation, illegal and immoral, and the settlement enterprise have grown more and more entrenched over decades. And we've witnessed not the gentle erosion of Israeli democracy, but its evisceration as we've seen the mainstreaming of racist ideologies and violent religious extremism, it's been bad for some time. Yes, and now it is worse. As our dear friends Daniel Sokach, Dr. David Myers wrote this week, to many in the United States who have committed much time and effort to supporting a progressive vision of Israel, this is a day of reckoning. Another day of reckoning, I should add, not unlike November 4th, 1995. In fact, there's a direct line from the murder of Yitzhak Rabin to the takeover of Israel's government this week by a right-wing illiberal group of extremists. That line started with Netanyahu, who only months before Rabin's assassination led an anti-Rabin rally, a mock funeral procession with a coffin and a hangman's noose, with frothing protesters chanting, death to Rabin. Does any of this sound familiar to us folks? It started with Itamar Ben-Gvir, then a young man who flaunted his prized possession, an emblem that was snatched from the hood of Rabin's car. And direct to camera, he made his intentions clear. We got to his car and we will get to him too. That line continued through more than two decades of state-sponsored settlement expansion and state-sponsored settlement violence through numerous administrations that lied about and denied the injustices that were being committed against the Palestinian people every day, the targeted left-wing leaders and LGBTQ folks and women and asylum seekers and did all that they could to quash the dream of religious pluralism in Israel too. There's a direct line from that November 4th to this November 4th. And I keep returning in my head to the question, was Rabin's assassination the death of a man or was it the death of a movement? Was this terrible course of events inevitable after this man, singular in character and credential, was murdered? Back in the 90s, I argued that we grieved the man and not the movement. I remained implacably hopeful. This battle is not yet lost. There were many setbacks on the way from Egypt to the promised land. But I have to admit that in my darkest hours, both this week and in the years leading up to what now seems to have been inevitability, I have wondered if the movement is truly dead. If the dream of a Jewish and a democratic state, of a refuge for our people and a place for Jewish wisdom to flow and for Torah to inspire, of a Jewish redemption story, of a shared society with our Palestinian cousins, if that dream is dead. Maybe in my dark hours, I've thought it really wasn't just the murder of a man, but it was the murder of a movement. It was the murder of a dream. And isn't that what Rabbi Yehuda was actually suggesting when he said that Avram was singular, the only one, unlike anyone in the world. The whole world stood on one side and Avram stood on the other. And if it hadn't been for him, 
Maybe God never would have been able to covenant with any human beings. But then I heard this week another voice from our tradition, a voice of the Spot Emmet writing in the 19th century in Poland. I studied a little bit of him with Rabbi Kasher this week. And the Spot Emmet offers a different message. Why was Avram so special? Why was he chosen by God to lech lecha, to get up and go? Know this, the Spot Emmet says. The call comes out from God to all people at all times. The difference between Avram, our ancestor, and everyone else is that he heard the call and he received the message. But don't think it was only sent to him. Don't think that he was the only one who could do the work and who could advance the dream. Everybody got the call. He was the only one who took it. So now, even now, even as I fear violence in the days ahead against Palestinians, against Jews who are not on board with this ultra-nationalist agenda, even as I fear the rolling back of LGBTQ rights, even as I fear the normalization of racism and extremist views, even still, I don't believe that this movement is dead. I don't believe that Rabin was the only one who could advance the vision of peace. I don't believe that the dream of a state fueled by Jewish and democratic commitments that a just shared society is dead. In fact, I believe that it is just waiting to be born. And so far as this week is a wake up call, let that call be sounded to every single one of us. A call not only to reject extremism and racism and violence both over there and right here, but also to do everything in our power to build a new reality, a shared society, a just society. Let Rabin's memory, the memory of a warrior turned peacemaker, be a reminder that change is possible. A reminder of who we're called to be when we stand in the breach between the world as it is, broken and divided, and the world as it could be, just and loving and brave. God is calling us. Can we hear it? For this movement to live, for this bold experiment in democracy and liberation and redemption and justice and equity and equality and love to live, both there and here, every single one of us must heed this call and help transform this reality into the reality that we know to be possible. I'm gonna invite you to please join me now for Kadisha Tome for the Mourner's Kaddish. We're on page 29. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.